0: Uh, this is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Good evening, everybody, and thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Thank you so much for being with us on the program this evening. As always, I'm your host, Caleb Cockwit. Welcome into the Situation Room here on News Radio 1440. And bad news today. I'm in a bad mood. Just going to be perfectly honest with you, I'm really upset about this. They just had the official announcement on their website not too long ago. The Montgomery Biscuits, and I I know it's not their fault. I know they didn't make the decision. I'm not mad at them. But the Montgomery Biscuits, of course, our local double-A baseball team, announced that they are not going to be having a season this year. So in the year 2020, there will be no Montgomery Biscuits baseball being played. And again, that's not their fault. And technically, it wouldn't be their fault even if they did make the decision if they had come down. Well, you could argue that one way or the other. But the Major League Baseball, in its infinite wisdom, after spending months and months and months and months going back and forth and arguing with its players and its players' union over exactly what the shortened season is going to look like, they came back with the verdict of we're just not going to have any minor league games. There will be a major league season. It is going to last for 60 games. And they are even going to have presumably some kind of playoff and championship kind of thing. But there is going to be a 60-game season. And with the minor leagues, they just decided to completely forego it and just drop back and punt. I know I'm mixing sports analogies here, but you know what I mean. And, uh, Go ahead and have it next year. Really upset about this. Really disappointed. In their official statement, the Biscuits actually did give some credence to and and actually emphasize, look, guys, we we are going to be coming back. We are going to have a season in 2021. At least that's the plan for right now. Who knows what the future may hold? But they said that they're going to make 2021 a, a great season, that they're going to work extra hard to make sure that next season is a lot of fun to make up for last season. But it is very disappointing. And frankly, at this point, with everything that we know about the virus, there's no reason to cancel outdoor events. There's really not. I mean, just with all the new studies that we've done on on contact tracing and where the virus spreads and how it spreads and, and the fact that this thing just cannot survive for very long at all in sunlight, there's no reason to cancel an outdoor event. I realize that with baseball, that's slightly trickier because the vast majority of the games do take place at night, but frankly, I think it would be great if they moved to some day games, had a few extra day games. The Biscuits, of course, have, I would say, probably a dozen-ish day games a year, and traditionally their Sunday games have been more in the afternoon than in the evening, although they've changed that around a little bit as the years have gone on. But you could do some day games. Riverwalk Stadium is obviously equipped to do that. In fact, it's cheaper to do a day game because you don't have to pay the power bill, I would imagine, with all the lights on the stadium. But nonetheless, that's how they handle it. That's the decision that has been reached by the major leagues. But it is a shame because this is an event that I think people would actually be able to do. And I don't know what the financial incentive would have been, and we'll talk about that in a second. But I got to imagine with things like movie theaters being closed down, which, I mean, that's an indoor event. You can see how the virus would spread more easily, especially when you've got a lot of people in a small space like that. With baseball, that's one area where really there should be no fear or concern. I'm not saying be dumb and and not be cautious at all, but it's it's kind of like the ordinance in Montgomery right now that you have to wear a mask even when you're outside. Well, that doesn't make any sense. I, I at least get it. I don't agree with the government mandate of it, but I at least understand the argument of wearing a mask when you're inside, when you could spread the virus, and that seems to be how the virus spreads is close human contact, but just it does not happen in the sun. It doesn't happen outside. And so this is one thing that people could actually be able to go to and enjoy and have a good time with their family when there is less competition, when there are other, when there are not nearly as many other events out there. You couldn't compete directly with movie theaters, that kind of thing. I think Major League Baseball is really dropping the ball here. Their own internal report, and you may remember that we covered this about a month, month and a half ago when this first came out, Major League Baseball actually did... A survey of and and a uh, a coronavirus testing for its staff and for its baseball players, everybody that is essentially employed by the Major League Baseball uh, as an entity, got tested for this thing, and they found that it was an incredibly tiny, minute portion of its staff. And remember, baseball hadn't started when all of this kicked off, but spring training had. They had already been playing baseball games, they had already been doing practices, they had already been around one another, and it was less than 1% of people tested positive for this that had been at those spring training uh, events. And why was that? Well, for one, they were playing in Florida and Arizona, and they're out in the blazing hot sun. And so, there's very, very little risk to the players. And so, at the bare minimum... What Major League Baseball ought to have done is continued to play the game since they posed virtually no risk whatsoever to the players involved. They should have continued to play the games and, and, if nothing else, just streamed them. I mean, even if you wind up playing the game during the day where there's less risk, really, they're shown that there's been really not even risk outside, if, especially if it's hot and humid, even during the nighttime if there's no direct sunlight, but you could have actually played the games during the day and broadcast them then, or you could have played the games and broadcast them later, just have a premiere at six o'clock, even though the game itself was played at like noon. They could have done that as well, but they didn't do that. And of course they had the fight with the players and everything. And then the fans, they're really the ones that are getting left out in the dark because they didn't get baseball, even through streaming or, or being able to watch it on TV And now they're not going to be able to go there and watch it themselves, even though there would be virtually no risk, even in a crowd, outside. There's no reason for—there really is no reason to believe right now that this thing spreads at all when you're outside. And the vast majority of the people, whether they be politicians or doctors, they know that and have already said that. Part of the reason that I said at the very beginning— now, again, there's a little bit more risk at night, and and a lot of these things happened at night, too— But one of the reasons that I predicted early on that the protest, I I think that there's some debate as to whether or not you're seeing these increases because of the protest or because of the reaction to the protest. But uh, I said early on that I didn't think that the people that were protesting would be endangering themselves or others with the coronavirus because it happened outside. And we can have debate as to whether or not that was the catalyst that caused the increase. I think it actually had a lot more to do with the fact that people saw the protests, saw that everybody was going out and about and there was no danger, or at least they were being told that there was no danger and reacted to that by doing activities that were significantly less apt to be safe from the virus, which would include indoor activities and larger gatherings. But nonetheless... Leave that aside for a second, because that is, is still a question. And I, I know that I, you can't definitively say one way or the other what caused that increase. But nonetheless, there's just no reason to believe that we should be canceling outdoor events for this. That That doesn't make any sense. And if I had to guess, the reason that Major League Baseball made this decision was primarily because they didn't believe that they could make money off of it. And I'm not saying that to be negative of major league baseball. That's, you know, should be the the main motivating factor for them to make any of their decisions. They are a business. But when it comes down to it, I don't know if that's actually correct. I think your attendance would actually be at least moderate or maybe even better than normal because there's so little else to do. There's so many events that you cannot do, and baseball would be a great substitute, something that you could do. You could go out and I mean, heck, I would even consider paying the extra money to be able to have a nice meal because so many of the restaurants are inside, which is significantly riskier. And so the great thing about the stadium is you could go out to the baseball game. Even if you don't care about baseball, I of course care a lot about baseball, but even if you don't care about baseball, I would think that there would be people showing up and eating in the outdoor dining area at the stadium just to be able to have a a safe place outdoor to get some great food. And I mean, Riverwalk Stadium has some amazing food. But nonetheless, I'm just so bothered by this because I think it's a gigantic missed opportunity in a number of ways. I think that maybe this would have actually brought in a lot of new fans to the game, and I don't know. Major League Baseball is probably crunching the numbers, and they've probably done some internal surveys to see how many people would be willing to go to a major sporting event at this point, and maybe the numbers weren't looking good. They didn't like the play, and so they decided to change it. And I understand that. I do understand worrying about that. And, and when it comes to something like a baseball game, you do have to worry about your operating costs, that there could be a certain point to where your operating costs exceed that which you were bringing in. And if there were a whole bunch of people afraid of the virus that didn't want to go to minor league baseball games, well, then that would cut in significantly to your profit margin. And it may just be cheaper to put yourself in a holding pattern and pick it back up again when it's more profitable. I understand that. I really do. I don't know if that's what they're polling or, or what their numbers were telling them, but I understand that initial reaction. My only question is I really, my only question in all that is, how could you be so sure about that? Would it not also be true that there's a good chance that there would be an awful lot of people that would say, okay, it's a pretty safe event, it's something that I can take my family out to, which we desperately need right now. And it's just something good to get out of the house. Even if you b- brought it down to 50% capacity, and I don't think that they would have to do that, but even if you brought it down and said, okay, families have to social distance from one another, we're going to not sell tickets for like, I don't know, every other row or something like that, do it church style, just block off rows and, and not sell tickets for that. I I still think that this is an, inc- even without that, I still think that this is an incredibly safe event and a good alternative, but I am really disappointed that the biscuits are not going to have a season, uh, you know. News Radio fourteen forty is used to be the home of the biscuits. Now that is Sports Radio seven forty. But when it comes to News Radio fourteen forty, we still have a really good relationship with them. We still have a partnership through Cumulus with them. We we still do a lot of their promotional stuff, and so this is something that I'm really close to, and I, I really really hate to see that this whole thing was wiped out when, frankly, I don't think that it should have been, and it could have been a really positive thing for the city. But that's where we stand. We're going to have to wait 10 more months to go to a Biscuits game. That's got me fired up. I am so disappointed. And another thing that really sort of is a kick in the pants is I was really looking forward to Huntsville now having the Trash Pandas, this being their inaugural system, or inaugural system, inaugural season. And I was going to go up there and watch the Biscuits play them and stay with my buddies uh, up in Huntsville. And I was really, really looking forward to seeing that. And now that even is not going to happen. So just overall, I'm, I'm ticked that I'm going to have to wait 10 more months for minor league baseball. I'm thrilled to death that we are getting at least some major league play this season, but I couldn't be more upset that we're not getting any minor league baseball at all this season. So another news story, which is... Probably not equally depressing, but a little bit more in line with the hard news that we typically do. The Alabama archives department has made a statement. So these are the guys that are essentially the curators, the keepers of Alabama's archives and history and that kind of thing. Uh, By the way, I've been to the archives building a couple times. They've got a new museum, which is only like three or four years old. Really, really nice, really well done. I actually really appreciated it. Spent a lot of time there myself. It's it's free to the public. You, you can just go by the archives building. And uh, I believe they also have a program where you can schedule a tour and go through the museum. Uh, they have great programs for like school kids and whatnot. It's a really, really cool facility. And I like the department as a whole, but some of the things that they've been doing recently, and, and by that, I mean this public statement that they just put out, It's got me a little concerned, and I think that you'll very quickly see why. First of all, the whole thing was aimed at correcting mistakes of the past, and that's not just like collectively or Alabama as a state. That's specifically talking about their mistakes in curating the history and not doing a good job of it. And it all stems from the idea, and we're going to read their statement in a second, that Alabama's Department of Archives and History that they had favored an incorrect historic narrative to essentially prop up and glorify the Confederate period when Alabama seceded, and that they had done so in, in somewhat a racially motivated way. So the fact that they A, recognize that, and B, are trying to do something about it and to change, that's a very positive good thing. But some of the things in this statement really give me pause, and I think that you'll very quickly see why. So, the ADAH, again, the Alabama Department of um, Archives and History, is in significant part rooted in this legacy. This legacy that it's talking about earlier in this document was racism, that kind of thing. The the state of Alabama founded the department in 1901 to address the lack of proper management of government records. Yeah. Yeah but also to serve as a white Southern concern for the preservation of Confederate history and the promotion of the Lost Cause ideals. Now, for those of you unfamiliar with this, the Lost Cause thing was, I don't want to go into all of the details, but basically just sort of a glorification of the South and and basically trying to prop up the, the idea that the South was right in the conflict of the war between the states. For well over half a century, the agency committed extensive resources to the acquisition of Confederate records and artifacts while declining to acquire and preserve materials documenting the lives and contributions of African Americans in Alabama. Now, here's the thing. I don't doubt this was going on. Indications that I've gotten from, you know, just reading through this document and some of the things that they talked about I am in no way questioning that this happened, that the Alabama Department of Archives and History, that at one point in their history, they were trying to look specifically at the Confederate Confederate period in Alabama's history with sort of rose-colored glasses, and that a lot of the things that they did, a lot of the parts of history that they chose to preserve and preserve it in a specific way was one that uh, specifically had an agenda behind it that they weren't doing so as arbiters or impartial judges when it came to history and just trying to preserve the facts. They preserved a specific interpretation of the history. And that's not right. That's not right for people that are charged with keeping history. History is not something to be glorified, and it is also not something to be reviled. It is a set of facts. It is history. And so the fact that they are admitting that, yeah, at one time... Our department came at history with a specific narrative, and it tried to drive home a specific point of view, a specific conclusion that happened before doing the research. Well, well, that's bad history. You don't go looking through history to try to find one specific thing or, or try to get an answer out of it. You go into it with an open mind and then go where the facts lead you. And that's what good documentation of history is. It's just looking at the facts and presenting the facts as facts. Neither good nor bad, neither glorified nor reviled, just, hey, this is what happened. Now, you're obviously allowed to, and and I do this quite a bit, give your own take on history and your own opinions afterward, but as far as people that are specifically charged with just preserving history generally, they're not supposed to do that. They're supposed to just give you the facts and let you make up your own mind on that. And they sort of give a little bit more light, they give you a little bit more guidance on exactly what this looks like in their resolution that they give just a little bit further down in this public statement. We will continue to expand efforts of the past four decades to document and to tell. Fully inclusive story of Alabama's role in the American experience. If history is to serve the present, it must offer an honest assessment of the past. Okay, I don't have anything that I disagree with there. I don't have anything that I disagree with in the statement that we read previously. I don't have a problem with any of that. That's a good thing that they're trying to correct mistakes that had been made in the past. But the problem is, you can't demonize certain aspects of history either. Just present it as it is, and then let people make their own interpretation. Now, if you're an opinion person like me, that's specifically why you come to me, is because I do have an opinion, I do have an interpretation, and I'm going to give it to you. But that's not something that's supposed to be done with an institution that is just supposed to be looking at the facts and reporting the facts instead of trying to interpret or give you one kind of spin or the other. And so it's good that the Alabama Department of Archives and History recognizes that and realizes that they need to do better. I commend them for doing that. But there's also some things in this statement that make me think that they may wind up doing exactly the same thing, just in the opposite direction now. And I'll give you the parts of the document that give me cause for concern. This was the very first part of their statement. This is their starting point of the statement where they basically admit all their wrongdoing. This was what they asserted and and believed should be the very first priority in letting people know. And this is a direct quote. Quote, Systematic racism remains a reality in American society despite belief in racial equality on the part of most individuals. Historically, our governments, our economy, and many private institutions ceded or perpetuated discrimination against racial minorities to the political, economic, and social advantage of whites. The decline over bigotry in mainstream society has not erased the legacies of blatantly racist systems that operated for hundreds of years." Okay, so now we're into pure political propaganda. They have moved from what seemed to be intended to be and and started out as a genuine, honest attempt to say, look, guys, in the past, this department has not always handled history the way that it should be. It it kind of romanticized certain aspects of it and uh, downplayed or ignored certain aspects of it, and that was wrong. And now they're moving into, yeah, we're going to go ahead and make an overt political statement that uh, racism is still systematically happening. That doesn't mean that there are still racists in the country or in the state of Alabama. There certainly are. There are racists everywhere, in every country, of every skin color. Racism is a human problem. Now, it's a tiny minority of people. And there have been times in history where it, unfortunately, was not a minority of people. and But now... Not only is it a tiny minority of people, but our systems are not built that way. They're asserting that they are. That the mere fact that people were racist in the past means that we're still racist in the present. First of all, that's an incredibly ridiculous statement, especially from someone that studies history. A person that studies history ought to be painfully aware of the fact that people and societies have the ability to change. Human nature may remain largely the same, but the fact that a couple of generations ago we had people that genuinely believed that it was the right thing to do to have black people drinking out of a different fountain or going to a different bathroom or to, you know, not have, uh, restrict their voting rights, things like that, does not mean that people hold the same sentiments today. That's simply not true. It is a logical absurdity. And yet this is the official position in an official statement by an actual department of the state of Alabama. It's absolutely ridiculous. And when they say that systematic racism is taking place, show me where. That's the question that I always ask people that say, well, we still have systematic racism going on today. And I'm not saying it merely rhetorically. I mean, there's a rhetorical point to be made there, but I'm not just saying, oh, no, there's not, that you can't find an example of it. Maybe you can. And if you can, let's work together to get rid of it. But what normally happens, and this statement does exactly the same thing, is when people say that there's systematic racism still in the country, and you say, okay, could you show me proof of it? Could you show me some data? Could you maybe explain what you mean by that? They're like, no, it's just there. Well, I could tell you that hobgoblins exist, and they are the cause for all of America's economic woes. I can't prove it. I have no data to back it up, but I could say it, that doesn't make it true. That's the issue that people constantly run into with these things, is that they want to present a narrative that America is still systematically racism, that the system, that society as a whole is rigged against black people or rigged against minorities collectively, and then when you ask them to pony up and actually prove it or give you an example of it that would show systematic racism, they can't do it. And the irony in all of that is, if they ever do try to present an example, they almost always give an anecdotal example, which is hilarious because that would defy the very definition of systematic. By definition, if you're saying there is a systematic problem, that means that anecdotal evidence would not play a part in it at all. At least when you're in a debate with somebody and they offer anecdotal evidence— There, it doesn't prove that the problem exists unless you were saying that there are no issues of this. You know, I don't want to wade too far into the weeds on debate theory here, but you could give anecdotal evidence to suggest okay, this does happen, but it doesn't show that it happens on a large scale when you're talking about a systematic problem specifically. Anecdotal evidence offers you no help and no insight whatsoever, because by definition, it would need to be a system problem, not a problem engaged or happening at the small level in one individual. And so it's funny that if they ever do try to come up with a, a reason, a explanation for the systematic racism still existing, it's always an anecdotal piece of evidence, which is, you know, doesn't even fit the definition of what we, what you were asking for. And then finally, and this may be an even more problematic statement, this is the last part of this that really does give me pause and, and question what exactly the Alabama Department of Archives and History means by this. They say, and I quote, As an organization, we remain mostly white, especially in agency leadership and in our archival and tutorial staffs. By the way, that, I believe that should be Staves, should it not? But anyway... Uh, Even with a serious sustained commitment to understand the historic roots of injustice and its present manifestations, we cannot know the full measure of fear and frustration experienced by African Americans who have lived different realities in the past and today. We listen and study with the intent, with sympathy, but our understanding requires ongoing work. So, what's the problem there? Now, if your staff is mostly white because you're refusing to hire black people, okay, that is a problem. In fact, that would beat the definition of systematic racism. But if your staff just, you're, you're saying that it's a problem that you remain mostly white, well, as long as you hired the most qualified person, you hired the person that is best equipped to archive and curate the history of the state of Alabama, why does that matter? Are we to assume that a white person cannot be as good a historian as a black person? That doesn't make any sense. Are we also to assume that a white person, for example, would not be a good person, a a good uh, medium for, I don't even know how to describe this, but somebody that could look at history that happened to black people in an objective light? Because that's also ludicrous. In the same way that a black person can be very well-versed—I'm sure there's black people that are more knowledgeable about this subject than I am— on things that happen primarily to white people. There are black people that are experts in European history, where the vast majority of it, there's not any black people around, or very few. The idea that you have to have a certain skin color to be able to even somewhat objectively look at history is just ridiculous. And it goes back to this postmodernist kind of idea of subjective truth. You can actually see a nod to that in this statement where it says that black people, or sorry, they say African Americans. I think that's ridiculous. That's an absurd term to use. But they even say in here that they have experienced different realities. Different realities. No, they experience the same reality. Reality is just reality. Now, they've had different experiences for sure. That is correct. You can be a person living in a a society and experience different things, but reality is reality. There's no such thing as a different reality. It's the same idea of this sort of subjective truth that there's, oh, well, there's your truth, but there's no the truth. There's no big truth. It's just your experiences and my experiences, and, and who am I to say that your experiences aren't reflective of reality? Well, most people's experiences aren't reflective of a larger truth. I mean, for example, uh, you could have somebody that has lived their entire life as a blind person. And to that person, they would not be objectively able to tell you the differences in colors. But that doesn't mean colors don't exist. And, you know, no offense to blind people, of course, it's not necessarily that, but I think that most blind people would say that they're missing out on an, ex- an experience that is not typical of reality. That there are certain realities that they, through no fault of their own, are incapable of experiencing because of their malady. But when it comes to this, I mean, I'm, I'm certain that there are certain experiences that I, you know, won't necessarily experience. That's true of every human being, regardless of their skin color. There are certain experiences that I won't have. It does not mean that I'm incapable of sympathizing or empathizing with that person or that I'm incapable of understanding the experiences of their life. I mean, the whole purpose of communication... Well, I won't say the whole purpose, but a significant reason that we have communication is to be able to communicate those things to other people so that they can help see where we're coming from. And I do find it hilarious that they basically adopt this idea that they are incapable of understanding the experiences of black people in a statement where they actually say we're going to do better to try to understand the experiences of black people. Well, that's a completely moot point. That is a completely ridiculous thing to try to do if you're already asserting that you can't possibly have the same reality as them. That's absurd. And so they can't even keep a set of logical consistencies within their own statement. And it's because they are married to the idea of postmodernism, that there is no one single objective truth, that it's all just about different people's truths and different people's experiences. Well, you know, I'm not saying that it's not important to hear those things. Of course it's important to hear those things. That's part of the reason that we have a Department of Archives and History. But ultimately there is a truth, and there are things that are not true, and a person's experience doesn't erase that. And in fact, the whole idea of a person experiencing something wouldn't necessarily make it a part of the system. So if there is systematic racism at any point in in the archives history, okay, I'm, I'm fine with that. I believe that that happened, and I'm glad that you guys are making an effort to fix it. But what I'm worried about here, and what I think the real danger is, is that because this seems to be the ideology that is driving the Department of Archives and History, I'm afraid what they're going to do is wind up engaging in revisionist history that basically does an overcorrection in the other direction. I don't want to see them make an overcorrection in that direction. Because if that does take place, what they're going to do is they're going to have a view of, for example, the Confederate period of history— and take a a narrative that they have already decided upon and paint it with a particular brush, look at it through a particular lens, and give an inaccurate understanding of the history there as well. I don't want that to happen either way. I don't want them to romanticize the Confederate period in history for Alabama. I don't want them to demonize it either. I want them to look at the facts and then give me the facts. That's all I want. They should be nothing but a delivery boy. They shouldn't be changing the package or presenting the package in a certain way when it shows up at my doorstep. And that is true of, for example, the civil rights movement. I think that anybody with a functioning brain would admit that these are two periods that racism was rampant in the state of Alabama and there are terrible things that did happen. You don't have to paint it with a certain brush to get people to understand that. Just find the facts, collect the data, and then give me the data. That's all I'm asking for. If the Department of Archives and History does that, then we're good. What I'm afraid of is their line of thinking that they sort of show their hand here in their statement would lead them to do essentially an overcorrection and do the opposite of what they did in the past to where they, they still have a narrative and they still are trying to present history in a certain way, but they're doing it in the opposite direction. That's just as wrong. It's this same idea that's going around right now that the only way to defeat racism is to to basically give advantage to, this is sort of the whole affirmative action argument, that the only way to defeat racism or to defeat any kind of discrimination is to give preferential treatment to the minority or the oppressed class. Well, no, that's ridiculous. Why don't we just put everybody on an even playing field, let the chips fall where they may? And affirmative action is actually what they're calling for in this thing, that we're going to try to be more diverse in our staff, and we're going to try to bring more minority people on. Look, just try to bring the best people you can on. Whoever is the best at their job, and I'm sure that when you do that, there are going to be some people in there, especially considering the size of the black population in Alabama, that when that happens, you're going to have some black people on the staff. That's fine. Nothing wrong with that. But there is no inherent value in having that. Whoever is the best person for the job should be the best person that gets that job. And so that they're trying to buy into this whole idea that the only way to correct mistakes of the past is to go in the other direction, and, and now what we have to do is we have to decide on another incorrect narrative and paint history with a different brushstroke. That's incorrect. And ultimately, the problem with this is it lends to the idea of vengeance versus reconciliation. If you want to get to reconciliation, you have to do it with the idea that everybody's created equally and should be on an even field. That's fine. That's what we're supposed to be striving for. That's what Dr. Martin Luther King called for, for everybody to just be judged on an even playing field and everybody to, to be judged by the content of their character not by the color of their skin. But what the new movement, especially in the past couple months, has been calling for is not that. It's saying, we want you to judge people of a certain skin color a certain way more favorably. And ironically, their whole statement to where they basically assert that white people just can't do as good a job of archiving history as other people and that's a problem that they have too many white people there, that will necessarily lead to racism if they actually make hiring and firing decisions based upon the color of a person's skin. Then a person that might be more qualified that just happens to be white won't get the job. That would be, by definition, systematically racist, if that does take place. But that's really the fear that I have for this thing, that that we're going to get a revisionist version of history, where you already decide what the story is going to be before you look at it, and then you constantly are going through your, your history and, and just trying to find confirming details and only show that part of it. It's, it's a bad way to handle history. It's a bad way to handle really any kind of storytelling that's supposed to be done in a somewhat objective manner. So we'll go to a break here, and we'll come back in just a little bit on tactics. Uh, this is a News Radio 1440 podcast. That was stupid. I know it was stupid. Really stupid. Hey, I just said it was stupid. (laughs) And for today's Daily Dose of Stupid, I don't know how many of you have heard about this, but the Supreme Court has come down with a pretty big decision, and the only reaction that I think is fitting for this decision is, hey, Robert's going to Robert's. And it has become an unfortunate pattern on the Supreme Court that Justice John Roberts, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, has become really somebody that uh, tends to side with the liberal justices on pretty much everything, and has basically dared the American people to try to stop the constant progressive agenda here, which has been very baffling and surprising to me, because Even though, yes, Roberts will occasionally screw you, especially with something like the Obamacare thing, at least in the past, Roberts did have a pretty conservative track record, and normally it was Anthony Kennedy that was the swing vote. Now it's like the default is that Roberts is going to be the swing vote, and he's normally going to rule with the liberals. He's quickly becoming just the fifth liberal justice, which is been really astounding because, at least with Justice Kennedy, it was a coin toss. This is getting to be where it's not a coin toss anymore, that this is just the Roberts modus operandi, which is very deeply concerning to me on a number of levels. So, for those of you who don't know the case where this came down, there was a Louisiana law that regulated abortion clinics and basically since Louisiana only has one major abortion clinic, that it would have effectively made abortion illegal, at least in certain ways. And the, the nature of this law was it made it to where any abortion clinic that was going to be operating, they could only use a doctor that has admitting privilege, privileges to a local hospital, and the hospital had to be within a certain radius of the clinic that was operating. Now, this actually does make a good bit of sense, because if you are concerned about not just abortion, but any kind of medical procedure taking place in a medical facility, It makes sense that other medical centers, and and this is not just true for abortions, this happens also with outpatient procedures that do not take place in a hospital, that if a doctor is going to perform some kind of surgery, he also needs to have admitting privileges so in case something does go south, there's something that, that happens to where the operation doesn't go the way that it's normally supposed to that that doctor needs to be able to go ahead and admit that patient automatically into a hospital to take care of that person because it could save their life. With abortion, however, it's funny to me how they constantly, and by day, I'm talking about the left here and the people that are the basically abortion-on-demand crowd, which is a stance held by only 13% of Americans, despite the fact that it is the Democrats' official platform, that... These same people that are for killing as many babies as possible and they always want to anything anything that would be even somewhat restrictive to abortion or abortion clinics that they want to go ahead and and get rid of it they automatically oppose it it's interesting to me that, that same crowd that keeps talking about, oh, well, you know, we have to be concerned about women's health or the people that will tweet out in annoying fashion with the stupid clappy hands thing that abortion is health care, that kind of thing, Planned Parenthood does this on a regular basis. That those same people that will make those statements oppose regulations like this that would make abortion safer. Remember the old tagline that really doesn't get used anymore, but the abortion... uh, advocates, those people's mantra used to be, well, we want abortions to be safe, legal, and rare. Well, they dropped rare a long time ago. They're, They're not even pretending to want to limit abortions. That pretty much ended, well, I mean, it ended before this, but that even the facade of wanting abortions to be rare pretty much went away when Planned Parenthood started the shout your abortion campaign. And then the safe kind of went by the wayside too. It seems like when it comes to the left and abortion, the only consistent stance that they have is they want it legal. They want to be able to kill their their babies on command. That seems to be the only driving consistency behind the movement. So legal is really the only thing they seem concerned about because if you were concerned about women's safety, you would think that they would want the doctor to have admit, uh, admitting privileges and to be able to go ahead and admit a patient into a hospital that would need to be within a certain radius, a, a certain distance from the hospital. And with the Louisiana law, it wasn't like it had to be two centimeters away or that it had to be done specifically in a hospital. It wasn't that level of unreasonable. But the fact that this was a, a very, very mild, it doesn't even in any way address when a abortion can take place. So it doesn't even limit like the time. It's, it's not saying like just not in the third trimester or any of that. All it says was that these medical facilities have to be within a certain distance and have a doctor that can admit patients to that hospital should something go south. But they don't want that because that might limit, that That might mean less dead babies, ergo they are against it. That seems to be the only principle that they care about now. And it's interesting because in 2016, there was virtually an identical case in Texas. Texas had a law that was very, very similar. And in that same case, when the Supreme Court did hear it, because it made it up to the Supreme Court too, the fascinating thing about this is that Justice Roberts, weirdly enough, voted on the other side. It was really, really strange, but now Justice Roberts is actually arguing with Justice Roberts. Like, it's one thing for Justice Roberts to argue with Kavanaugh or Gorsuch or Alito. Those things have become basically, we know that. We know that he's going to disagree with Justice Thomas and and Kavanaugh. Well, Kavanaugh, not as much. He hasn't been there as long. But definitely Justice Thomas and Alito, at least from time to time. Now we're seeing him argue against himself. It's a really weird situation to be in that he basically even asserts that he's arguing against himself because he says in his opinion, and and as Roberts typically does, he does so on very narrow grounds, but he argues in his opinion that this decision that came down is essentially exactly the same. And even though, yes, I did vote on the prevailing or sorry, the dissenting side last time and got rid of the Texas law by voting with the conservative justices. I'm voting with the liberal justices this time because of stare decisis. Now, stare decisis, the actual translation is that is as it stands or it, no, it's as it has been decided. So little rusty on my Latin here. I'm not a lawyer. Uh, (laughs) It means it has been decided. And so Basically, and this is what Justice Thomas has argued for years and years and years, that stare decisis is basically meaningless. Because everybody rules exactly the way that they want to rule regardless, stare decisis is just a cloak that people use as a disguise to essentially try to uh, tell people that starry decisis matters, because whenever somebody thinks that a decision was wrongly decided, then they'll go ahead with that. But if they believe the decision is rightly decided, they'll just cloak themselves in, oh, it's starry decisis. That's the reason. That's the rationale for me deciding the way that it did. And so really, starry decisis is completely meaningless in the legal sense, because if If we were to just adopt the stare decisis doctrine, then we would still be under Brown v. Board of Education and Plessy v. Ferguson. Like, all of those would would continue to be the law of the land if that were the case. But it's not. And so... um, essentially what this boils down to is John Roberts didn't want to have a fight over abortion and he wanted to be less contradictory or sorry, not less contradictory. He already is contradictory by doing this. Uh, He wanted to be less controversial. And so what he did was he said, okay, this time I'm just going to go with stare decisis has been decided. Therefore I'm not going to change it. It's a really, really dumb ruling. But the thing about John Roberts is he will do absolutely anything to protect the public perception of the court. He thinks that the most important thing that he can do as chief justice is to try to get other people to believe that the courts are impartial, which is ridiculous on a number of levels because A, his behavior has not made the court less controversial in any way, and B, and I think that this is even more important, he has a bad idea of what public perception actually is. Because he is in Washington and surrounded by the Washington bubble, he seems to think that what the American population's opinion actually is, is whatever the Washington Post op-ed page says. So whatever the opinion column in the Washington Post says that day, that is, in his mind, the opinion of the American people, because that's the bubble that he lives in. But it's simply not true. And you can see this in his decisions over the past few years, that he basically will do anything to keep the media from saying that the court was wrong. That seems to be his biggest fear, and because of that, he rules in that one particular way. But I understand. I genuinely do. I understand the desire to protect the integrity of the court. The public faith in the court is something that is worthy of protection. I'm not saying that that in itself is wrong. What is wrong is when you start allowing that to influence your legal opinion. Your legal opinion, your job as a justice of the Supreme Court is to say, is it constitutional? Is it not constitutional? Not constitutional? Don't care what people think. In fact, the Supreme Court, the reason that they have lifetime appointments is because that was a strategy to keep public opinion from influencing the court. The founders believed that it would be a bad thing for public opinion to influence the court. Because if that happens, and unfortunately this is the situation we now find ourselves in, basically what the Supreme Court would become is merely a roundabout way for direct democracy. If we wanted public opinion influencing these kinds of decisions, we wouldn't need a Supreme Court. We would just vote on everything. Who do you think is right in this court case? Okay, 50% plus one of the American people believe it should be this way, ergo, that's what we should do. We saw it earlier in the decision on trans rights that there is a public perception of what the right thing to do is. There is a public perception that the civil rights, at least by some, again, mostly the people that run the opinion column in the Washington Post, but certainly not the average American, that believe that this is the way things ought to be, therefore the Supreme Court is going to rule this way. It's incorrect. It defies the very nature of of what the Supreme Court ought to be. A perfect example is how Justice Antonin Scalia ruled on the burning the flag uh, case. At that time especially, now, unfortunately, it might not be this way, but at that time, the vast majority of the American population and Justice Scalia himself would say that it's wrong to burn the flag, that that's a very bad, bad thing to do. And I think that they would be right, but it was still the right thing to do as a justice of the Supreme Court to rule that it was not the wrong thing to do, that that is protected by free speech, because, again, your job as a justice of the Supreme Court is to say, okay, constitutional, unconstitutional, and let the chips fall where they may. That's what you were supposed to do. And the fact that Justice Roberts has completely just gotten rid of that is insane. There is a inherent value in people having faith in our public institutions, But when that becomes your primary objective, that just making sure that public opinion, especially when it comes to things in regards to the law, when that becomes your only driving force, that's a very, very dangerous place to be. We actually saw it with James Comey. James Comey, one of the things that he tried to preserve that was paramount to him was trying to protect the public faith in the FBI. And by doing so, he wound up doing the exact opposite. He wound up destroying public faith in FBI because they were making decisions based on politics. John Roberts is doing exactly the same thing here because he is so incredibly worried about what people will say and what people will think about the court. He is so concerned and is so, it's so in his head that they're going to have to be basically, that their job is to be non-controversial, that he is allowing it to mar the actual purpose of the Supreme Court that's become a problem. Now, a couple of other concerns with this, what this means going forward and what it means for the future. Basically what this means, this decision, what it shows is that the chances of this court, and by that I don't mean the Supreme Court, I mean the current makeup of the Supreme Court, the nine justices that currently sit in those seats, the odds of this Supreme Court deciding that Roe versus Wade should be overturned is approximately 0.0. There is no chance that this court is going to overturn it because Justice Roberts would not dare do anything that controversial. As long as he is the one that is going to be making those decisions, he is not going to do something that. Or, because think about this the whole idea behind the doctrine of stare decisis, in other words, court precedent being important is that the older the precedent is, the harder it should be to overturn. Why? Because that means there is more law that has happened in the time since then that rests upon that former decision by the court. So in other words, the older it is, the higher threshold there should be to overturn it. John Roberts took a very benign Louisiana law that barely regulated or curtailed abortion, at least in the the realm of legal theory, maybe not necessarily in practicality or actuality, but certainly in the realm of political theory, that he looked at that and decided to fall back on stare decisis and argue with himself on a precedent from four years ago. This is an ancient history. This didn't happen in the 1920s. This is court precedent from 2016, a case that he sat on And argued for the opposite side. If John Roberts cannot even stay consistent from four years ago to overturn an abortion regulation that has had presumably very little law based on it happen in that short four-year period, there is zero chance that he is ever going to overturn Roe v. Wade. Everyone was terrified that Justice Kavanaugh by getting confirmed, because I'm old enough to remember when this was the left's argument, that the second that Brett Kavanaugh is confirmed, that is the end of abortion. And of course they went to other radical extremes and and ridiculous arguments saying that with Kavanaugh, we're going to have abortion pills. They were literally wearing outfits from the handmaid's tale, basically saying that women will become slaves and property by Kavanaugh being confirmed. And the Supreme Court can't even curtail abortion even just a little bit by a, a very slim legal standard. Not even undoing a court decision that happened literally four years in the past with most of the same judges sitting on it. Do you really think there's any chance that this court is going to overturn Roe v. Wade? Now, maybe, and by the way, I'm not jonesing for this to happen. I'm just giving this as a, uh, as a what if. Justice Roberts or one of the other liberal justices either has to retire or, I mean, I actually would Jones for them to retire, uh, but, but, you know, it's possible that one of the liberal justices could pass away or something like that. Now, if that happens and we get a different Supreme Court, okay, maybe. Maybe we could get an overturning of Roe v. Wade, but it's not going to happen with this makeup of the court. It's simply not. And everything that we have seen shows this. And another political concern here because I've heard a lot of people on the left trying to make the argument, oh well well this law was just a Trojan horse and the state of Louisiana basically, they just set that up because they were trying to cause there to be less abortions. Yeah. What 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 what's your point? See, this is the thing that's so ridiculous in legal analysis the intent ought not matter, at least in this particular case. Like Whether or not the people in Louisiana were trying to get rid of it, which is a noble goal and something I would cheer for, so I'm not saying that that wasn't it. I think the Louisiana lawmakers probably were, especially that being a big Catholic stronghold in the United States. The, The people of Louisiana probably were specifically trying to curtail abortion in doing so. That probably was their intent. doesn't matter. That should have no bearing on whether or not this thing was decided constitutional or unconstitutional. That that should be a non-factor in looking at that decision. Like I've said before, when it comes to originalism, intent only matters when the language itself is vague. The actual understanding of the law, the text of the law, that's what textualism is, uh, should be taken into consideration here, and ev- evidently John Roberts thinks not. Uh, but From a a larger political standpoint, I do think that this actually hurts President Trump in his re-election bid. Now, I don't think that this is like the last nail in the coffin or anything like that, but I think it does hurt Trump, and, and this is why. 21. 21 of the past 28 Supreme Court justices that have been appointed have been appointed by Republican governors. Gang, mathematically, that is 75%. 75% of all of the justices going back for the past 28 have been Republican appointees. Roe v. Wade, still law. Obamacare, considered constitutional. We have the Obergefell case where gay marriage is now not only allowable by a state, but it is the law of the land and it must be universal. Look, What this does show, and I know that Roberts is not the one that President Trump appointed, and so you can't blame Roberts, you know, uh, jettisoning all legal understanding and reasoning to be able to try to not make waves. You can't blame that on President Trump. But what I am saying is, any Republican president, whether he was an incumbent or not, in a lot of ways has lost a major talking point because of this. Because maybe maybe I've got a little bit of bias and maybe the average voter doesn't pay close enough attention for this to make a difference. But I got to say, if I'm even the average voter and even somebody that voted for Trump the first time and and really likes what he's saying, remember that one of his major talking points, in fact, President Trump straight out said this, look, even, even if you don't like me, you're going to wind up, okay, voting for me. You're going to vote for Trump because the Supreme Court Granted, that's a paraphrase, but it's pretty much a direct quote. I mean, he basically said that in one of his campaign rallies before he was elected. And he was right. There are a lot of people that are conservatives that didn't like Trump that went out and voted for him because of the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is a major decision. It is a major contributing factor to the way conservative voters pick candidates. But based on all this, should it be? Based on what we're seeing here recently, why would I believe that just because a justice has been appointed by somebody with an R behind their name that they're going to be any necessarily better than anybody else? Because let's say that Justice Gorsuch and Kavanaugh... We're not justices right now. Let's say that Hillary Clinton won the election and we've got basically two Ruth Bader Ginsburg or Sonia Sotomayor clones that are taking their spot and they're the only conservatives left on the court are Alito and Thomas. Now, that's a terrifying thought. But let's be honest, would the decisions come down any differently? In the past few weeks, would we have seen any difference in the way that the Supreme Court ruled? Yeah. There have been a couple of decisions that went the right way, but you are going to have a really hard time explaining how effectively having four or having two new justices on the Supreme Court appointed by President Trump are effectively making a difference for the rulings of the Supreme Court. I don't think you really can, especially after the trans decision that went six three. I think that it's it's very very difficult to make that case to a conservative voter. And the irony in all of that is we constantly make fun of socialists, and should. I'm not saying that we shouldn't. In fact, I I intend to make a lot more fun of Bernie Sanders and AOC in the coming months. But we constantly make fun of socialists for seeing something that has been a dismal failure for about a century now and continuing to try that thing over and over and over again, that thing being socialism, that... Okay, well, it failed, but maybe it'll work this time. No, this time. No, this time. Well, maybe it'll work this time. Well, that that wasn't real socialism, so we're going to try it again this time. Granted, it's on a smaller scale, but aren't conservatives doing exactly the same thing? We've got to vote for a conservative president, or sorry, we have to vote for a Republican president because of the Supreme Court. Oh, that didn't work. Maybe it'll work this time. No, this time. Maybe it'll work this time. Republicans are going to have a hard, hard case. And and not just President Trump, but the senators as well. In energizing the base and getting them to come out and vote, because we're getting effectively the same thing from the Supreme Court, regardless of who is in office. And that's terrifying on the micro level, but it's also terrifying in the sense that if elections do not have consequences, if the Supreme Court can undo the results of an election, and they are effectively daring the public to elect anybody that might appoint somebody different to the Supreme Court, then that's dangerously close to what Thomas Jefferson called judicial tyranny. And it really is disgraceful that we've gotten to this point. Let's go to the chaplain's report. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps, under the command of General George Washington, Each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for the Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics. Our Chaplain's Report today is going to be from the book of Samuel again. We are continuing our series there And Israel has been battling the Philistines at this point. They're already going back and forth with them. And and really, I say that, but there's not a whole lot of back and forth going on. God has basically already delivered the Philistines into their hands. They've already won the victory. The Philistines are on the run. Israel is just going in and pursuing the fleeing Philistine army and spoiling them and and taking the spoils of war. Uh, Things like livestock, cattle, gold, that sort of thing. And so this is taking place. And while all this is going on, you may recall this has been the subject of the past several chaplains' reports looking at this passage of Scripture, that Prince Jonathan is running through the woods there and he comes across some wild honey and he partakes of it, which normally wouldn't be a big deal, except even though Jonathan didn't know this at the time, because he was off doing something else when all of this happened. His father, King Saul, had declared that any man that partakes of food, any man in his army that eats before sundown, that that person is, I think the exact wording is, let him be accursed or something like that. Basically, he says that everybody, I'm going to take this oath and we're all going to go on a fasting until this. And and Jonathan has some words to say about that. You can check that out in the chaplain's report, I believe, from last Tuesday, if you want to check that out on my YouTube channel. But Jonathan did partake of this, honey, not knowing that his father had declared this and then a little bit later on, where Saul sees that God has not given him an answer for his question through the prophets and the priests that are there traveling with them, that he says, well, what this must mean is that somebody has broken this oath. And by the way, Saul is right. He doesn't know that it's Jonathan. But he says, whoever has broken this oath will die, even if it is my son Jonathan. Again, he says this not knowing that his son was actually the one that did indeed break this oath. And so, that results in this exchange that we're going to be looking at tonight from 1 Samuel chapter 14, verses 43-45. through 45. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. So Jonathan told him and said, I indeed tasted a little honey at the end of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I must die. Saul said, May God do this to me, and more also to you, For you shall surely die, Jonathan. But the people said to Saul, Must Jonathan die who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. This is a really fascinating piece of scripture because when you look at part of having a king being a bad idea and part of the reason that God didn't want people to have a king is because a human being does not need to have that much absolute power. A human being cannot possibly handle the responsibility because he's a flawed human being. They cannot adequately handle the responsibility that comes with having that kind of absolute power over other people's lives. And this is a perfect example of why it's a bad idea. Saul, in his own ignorance, because he's an imperfect human, he's not God, he made a very foolish vow. A vow that, in this case, Jonathan didn't even know about and violated, even though he didn't know that that was the case. This is the reason that you don't have human beings with this much authority over another person's life. And yet, it happened. And so, Saul makes this very foolish vow, which is a stupid idea. He makes it in haste. It's basically a whim, a spur-of-the-moment thing that he just decides at the last second, okay, this is what we're going to do from this point on, and then enforces it because he is the king. He has the power to do that. And this is an illustration of why a human being shouldn't have that kind of authority. But nonetheless, this is what happens And I think that this really does illustrate the principle to us, even though we don't have this kind of absolute power that Saul had over other people. But this is a truism regardless of what our position in life is. Never make a promise you don't intend to back up. Don't say foolish things just on the spur of the moment or for emphasis or whatever. If you say something, you need to be able to back it up. See, Saul here makes a promise that he doesn't think he's ever going to have to keep. First, he makes the promise with the oath and saying that nobody is going to taste any food, which is, again, a foolish thing, a ridiculous thing to say, because then your entire plane can be screwed up by one random person saying, oh, look, some wild berries over there. Okay, I'll just go ahead and take those, and and I don't care what Saul says. But it could also be done by somebody that didn't even know that. It could be ruined by somebody that's just forgetful and takes a bite of something, not even remembering that that was to take place. And so the whole episode, Saul does something very, very foolish here, and then to try to make his point, he enforces a law that was not God's, that was something that he commanded, and does so and says, even the person that does this is going to die, even if it's my only son, not realizing that actually had taken place. And so Saul, in this episode, is an awful lot of talk and bluster and then it comes time that he has to back it up, and, and I guess to his credit, even though this was a dumb thing to do, to his credit, he at least is trying to showcase some integrity and some impartiality, saying, well, I said it, so now we have to do it. I will grant Saul a little grace in that area, but the overall the decision-making process and the way that he chose his words were not a good, godly way to govern. But if Saul ever had a defining trait, and I, by the way, I do find this hilarious that we just got done with John, talking about John Roberts in our Daily Dose of Stupid. I didn't plan this. This is part of an ongoing series. But Saul seems to have the same problem that Justice John Roberts does, which is basically all of his decisions are dictated by what the public thinks. Saul cares way too much about what people think. And usually when it comes a, down to a question of Saul doing the right thing or what the public thinks he should do, he almost always goes with what the the public thinks he should do, regardless of what the right thing to do is. He will straight up defy God's law in order to protect public opinion. He does this multiple times in the Scripture. And he does it right here, too. Remember that in Saul's own mind, the right thing to do would be to execute his son for breaking his oath. But public opinion suddenly changed and dictated that he not do that, so he went with public opinion. So Saul winds up doing the right thing and not killing Jonathan, but in his mind, it wasn't the right thing to do. It was what public opinion dictated that he ought to do. That's the problem with Saul. That's basically how he makes all of his decisions It's just, in this particular case, public opinion happened to be right. This is part of the problem that I have, and I don't want to go off way into politics, but this is part of the problem that I have with the doctrine of populism, that you basically just go with whatever the crowd thinks, because the crowd very often gets it wrong. This is an occasion where the crowd got it right. This is an occasion where the crowd, what they decided was actually the correct conclusion to come to, but not always. In fact, more often than not, public opinion this is especially true if you understand your biblical history. More times than not, the people are going to decide the opposite of what God would want them to decide, unfortunately. But it's interesting because the law of God actually has a provision for something like this. God understood that human beings are impetuous and impulsive and say crazy and wild things to make a point like, Saul does here, and because of that, there actually is a provision that takes place in Leviticus 27 in the Law of Moses that explains that a foolish vow can be undone with an offering. And I believe for a male over the age of 26, again, sort of leading to the idea that young people tend to make really dumb decisions, and a a grown man like Saul ought to know better, but I believe it's any man over the age of 26 has to give up 50 shekels, to the priest, and so that is the payment that he makes for a bad vow. You're not supposed to go through with the vow. You're supposed to give an offering and ask for forgiveness for making that foolish vow. This is, by any reasonable person's definition, a very foolish thing for Saul to do. And so, if Saul knew God's word, if he knew the words of God, the law of Moses, and knew it better, he would know that this isn't a decision that he has to make. All he has to do is make an offering to ask God's forgiveness for making the dumb vow in the first place, not follow through on your own stupidity. And so had he known God's God's law, he would have avoided this altogether, which I think is a very powerful statement for us. That sometimes just knowing God's law will get us out of the jam before we even get into the jam. It provides a scriptural way of escape, a way to understand what we're actually doing and having that wisdom and insight at our disposal at a moment's notice will help us in our decision-making process just like it would have helped Saul here. But ultimately, what this story does illustrate and illustrate very powerfully is that words do matter, that God does take what we say seriously. And because our words do matter, it is incumbent upon us to use them wisely and to use them in a way that God would approve. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. Only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.